talk to you about the doctrine of God. I'm going to use the word doctrine. I'll explain that in a minute. And we're going to talk about things like, uh, over the next six weeks, like the authority of Scripture. We're going to talk about Satan and demons. We're going to talk about the doctrine of salvation. We're going to talk about the doctrine of sanctification. We're going to talk about the doctrine of the church. And I hope to clear some things up uh, biblically. I hope to challenge you a, a little bit. Uh, you may not find yourself fully agreeing with everything I say. It's okay. I always tell, uh, we've had lots and lots of uh, interns and students, and I always tell people, you're so free to disagree. The only thing I want to challenge you with is disagree with the Bible. You know, so if you don't disagree with the Bible, that's not a good thing. All right? Everybody agree with that? All right, because the Bible's our source. Now, um, just so you know, we do have things for sale at the book table in the back from previous classes. If you missed a previous class, you want to be a part of that, you can get involved in that. Again, all of the, the classes are free. Um, the reason we sell the books is because we want to have the book available for you if you want to take the last class. And there are other resources uh, back there. Um, can I just say something before I move on? I'm going to, but uh, I'd like to get some agreement, you know, just to make you feel like you're involved. probably a bad thing to say, but <clears throat> um, I am, this isn't part of the message, but I am, uh, as I approach tonight, as I approach the class on biblical theology, I had a lot of thought about um, my view when it comes to Christianity, and I think that uh, it's important for me to say some of the things, some of the things that are in my heart, uh, because I'm concerned. I I'm concerned that uh, Christianity Maybe in the maybe this is uh, maybe a Baptist would argue with me that it's more of a charismatic uh, thing than it is for some denominations. I don't know, but I'm concerned that people are more interested um, in being uh, inspired than instructed, and I'm concerned that people are more interested in being touched than trained. And uh, and I I just want to tell you right up front, you got to put your thinking cap on for this. Um, if you came to be inspired, I don't know that I'm going to be able to bring you to that place. If you came for your emotions to be touched, uh, that's up to God. I, I'm not, I'm not going to try to do that during this class, okay? I'm a preacher. I love to preach because I love the Bible and I love transformed lives. We just were in California this last weekend. We saw Crescent City. We were partnering with them. We saw some people come to Christ. There's nothing more important to me than somebody giving their life to Jesus, repenting from their old life, saying yes to him and to new life. And then beginning the walk of discipleship, seeing that not only they will be transformed, but quite frankly, their generations after them, their lineage could be entirely transformed. History is being formed. I love that. When it comes to teaching a class, it's important that we don't go to that place of just, I just want to be inspired. I don't want to be instructed. I just want to be touched. I don't want to be trained. Discipleship is about committing ourselves to being trained as disciples of Jesus. That means we need to be challenged. Some of us, we come and we're looking for things that we already believe. Some of us come and we're looking for certain uh, feelings. And I'm not sure that you'll get that. I, I, I want to say it up front. But I, I do want to tell you that we've called this biblical theology because we're going to get into the Bible together. I'm going to say more Bible verses tonight than I think, I'm, I, I, than I think I'm should be able to in an, in an hour's time, okay? That's going to happen. And, uh, but I, here's the thing. The Bible's not boring. The Bible's not boring. I think we're boring. Okay? I think we're boring. That's why we go home and watch Netflix for hours, you know. It is bored. And we got to get entertained. And, and, and so this isn't entertainment. This is instruction. All right? 
And, and, and you might know that. You might like, Ben, amen, why are you saying that? Because I just feel like I'm, con- I'm concerned. I'm concerned that that's what, um, that's what gathering together has become in many places and in many ways. And so take a next step. If, if that's you and you're like, well, oh, Ben, that's a good point. You know, I don't, I don't want to be kind of a casual Christian. Take a step. Stick with me for six weeks. If you can make it, make it. All right? Don't give up just one, two weeks in. Uh, make it as much as you can. And if you can't make it and you can do the online, do the online. But just see it through, okay, as, as much as you can. If you've got to work, you've got to work. If you've got to watch your children, you've got to watch your children. I get it. But I just feel like sometimes I don't, I don't get a fair shake when it comes to a class. And uh, I watch hundreds and hundreds of people come through these classes, and I, and I often wonder, where's that one person, <laughs> you know, who said they were so committed that they would, if I died, they would jump into a grave with me, and I didn't see them the second week. <laughs> it was like, Pastor, listen, I'm so committed to you. If you died, listen, you're not going to be able to hold me, hold me back from jumping in the grave with you. I never see him again. I mean, I never, <laughs> God's going to challenge that word. God's going to challenge every step of your, or I'm sorry, the enemy's going to challenge every step of your development, and God's going to challenge you to step up. And so we need to grow as the people of God, and, and as I approach the elections, I, I've, never, I've never had a day like today. Um, I've never seen people come unglued the way people have come unglued. And as you're going to hear tonight as we talk about the doctrine of God, God is the one that holds the world in his hands. And when did Christian people forget that? If you're not sure where you're at with Jesus, let me reassure you, God knows exactly what he is doing, even when men are making the choices that they're making. Men and women make choices, but God knows exactly what he's doing. And um, so whether you voted for the person that got elected as president or not, whether you're happy today or you're super sad today, whether you're fearful today, there's a lot of fear out there today of what's going to happen. Um, regardless of where you're at, is, this is a time, if you're a Christian, this is a time to hear the voice of God, know the word of God, and what is God calling us to do as Christians? People are getting unglued from their political stance, and I just want to tell you, let's plug back into the word of God and offer the hope that we have that only comes from Jesus Christ. I'm not looking, I would have felt the same, today, I, honestly, I, I would have woke up and I wouldn't have been emotionally stirred either way, no matter what was said. That, that's absolute truth, personally. Because my hope is not in who, who is president. You know, people can change. And I, and I think sometimes it says a lot when people are more concerned about who you voted for than whether or not you share the gospel as a Christian. 6% of the millennial generation actually read the Bible, according to Barna's studies. And I would say it's about 9% of people in America share their faith, Christians, evangelicals. 9% of people who name the name of Jesus share their faith in 16 months with another person. I'm more concerned about that than I am who you voted for. So I think that we should come back to what really is going to save men's souls. And I mean that. Democrat, Republican, don't know who you are. (laughs) I mean that with all sincerity. And you might say, well, Ben, that sounds passive. Fine. I'm very, very active when it comes to Jesus, though. You know? So at least you know what you're getting from me. Okay? Say, I may not get a political perspective from Mr. Ben Dixon, but you're going to get the Bible. All right? So that's what we do here.
and we want to focus on that. It doesn't mean we don't talk about issues. We do talk about issues, but it's more about what we do than what we say, all right? Everybody breathe. Cool. That's the best political speech I have. Awesome. All right, well, let's pray and jump into this together. If you have a uh, set of notes, uh, they look like this. If you don't have a page of notes and you want one, go ahead and raise your hand before I pray. Go ahead and raise your hand. Keep it up. Uh, could I get some of my friends to grab the notes wherever they are and get a set of notes to you if you want a set of notes? If we run out, you're going to have to use um, the ones next to your neighbor. Here you go. You guys can share this one. Um, and, uh, and if you want them and we don't have enough, I think we don't want to waste paper, so we only print out usually about 80, 75, 80, so we never know how many people are going to be here or how many people are going to use the notes. Okay, everybody's, almost everybody's taken care of. Uh, we'll have a set of notes every week digitally, and you'll get a copy here if you're interested, so you can follow along. That's if I choose to go along with my notes, which I most of the time do, pretty, pretty much, right? Some of you are regular, regular folks, and you didn't say yes, so I don't know. All right, looks, looks like we're good. I'm going to pray. Father, we thank you for our time tonight, and uh, we just pray that you would give us a fresh reverence for who you are, and God, we just thank you that you're so great and you're so awesome and magnificent. And yet you've chosen to allow yourself to be knowable. I mean, that to me is beyond my comprehension. And I just pray that that would blow us away. As the, whatever I say and whatever we look at tonight, however much we can get through, God, I just pray that you'd blow us away with how much you are in love with us and um, really how great you are. And that those two concepts would collide for us, cause a reverence out, uh, to come, an, an awe, a wonder for who you are. We thank you tonight for your word in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 So as you know, tonight we're talking about biblical theology. Our session is called The Doctrine of God. And I want to define two words so that you know what I'm talking about. The first word I want to define is the word theology. The word theology, uh, according to the dictionary, is the study of God and the relations between God and the universe, the study of religious doctrines and matters of divinity. Simply put, it's the study of God, if you just want to say it simply. Uh, we call this class biblical theology because we're studying God through the lens of the Bible. There are other kinds of theology. We could have done natural theology coupled with biblical theology. We could have done systematic theology. But I, we don't have time in a six-week class to go over a, a lots of stuff. I, I'm not going to be able to present to you evidence of God's existence. Uh, the assumption in this class is that you're a believer or that at some level, at least you understand that we are already approaching this topic and this set, these set of sessions with that God is real and we believe that. Uh, and the word of God reveals who he is. So I'm already approaching it that way. It doesn't mean that there isn't more that we could go over. We could go over the existence of God. Uh, we could go over lots of different proofs. Uh, it would just be the entire class. We'd have to at least extend it double what it is to do that. So I want to make sure that you understand. That's why we're calling it biblical theology. The word doctrine means a body or system of teaching relating to a particular subject. So when I say the doctrine of God or the doctrine of the church or any 
doctrine. I'm just simply referring to that word as a body or system of teaching on a particular subject. It's just a certain, it's a teaching about God. It's a teaching about the study of God. And so we're approaching uh, tonight with the very definition of theology on the doctrine of God. So what an amazing uh, topic to be discussing. And tonight I'm going to approach this topic uh, in two ways. I'm going to talk about who God is, which would be his essence, and I'm going to talk about what God is like. This would be his attributes. That's the way that I'm going to discuss it, and I'll break it down from there. But I think that it's important to kind of just up front talk a little bit about some different beliefs. I want to just say that because I'll use these throughout our discussion. And the first is, as you might know, that there is different kinds of beliefs out there, and one of the belief systems is what we call atheism. Atheism is the belief that there is no God. I, I've met atheists. There are different kinds of atheists, actually. Uh, but uh, there's the philosophical atheists. There's the practical atheists. And God help us that none of us live like we're practical atheists, even though we're professing Christians. A practical atheist is somebody who lives like there is no God. All right? A professing atheist is somebody who says or believes or teaches that there is no God. Atheism is something that has spread um, in the world that we live in, obviously. And the second is agnosticism. This is the belief that there is some kind of God, but whomever and whatever God is cannot be known. An agnostic does not only say, um, I, uh, I can't know God. The agnostic actually says, you can't know God, which is, it provides a very serious problem. I know more agnostics than I do atheists. These are the people that I meet usually. Uh, I can honestly say that's probably what I would be considered before I was 19 years old and met Jesus, I, I knew that there was something. Um, I kind of thought Jesus was the way, but I didn't believe it. It was like a story to me, and I had no faith to lock on to the story uh, to realize what, who he was and that, in fact, he was real. So I was a practical agnostic and most likely a professing one when I was a young man. And I meet people like this all the, t the time. And I think a lot of times people don't want to lock into a belief system, so agnosticism is very popular because we don't want to say there isn't a God because I can't explain it either way. So even intellectually, it seems to be a place where people land quite often. Now, there is also polytheism, and this is the belief in many gods. Many ancient cultures share this, as some modern do as well. So if you were to look in the Bible, for example, uh, polytheism is noted in the Egyptian culture. You would see that. They would worship many different gods. We have a lot of residual of that culture even today. So they would worship the sun god and the moon god and the river god and so on. You see this in Hinduism today and other religions as well, polytheism. And it's important to kind of know some of these as we get further into the conversation. And there's another one that's deism. This is the belief that there is a god, but he is no longer involved in his creation. Deism. Now, I don't know if you've ever read anything by Thomas Jefferson, but Thomas Jefferson wrote a little book, and I think it's called The Life and Teachings or The Morals and Teachings of Jesus of Nazareth. Basically, Thomas Jefferson took the Bible and cut out everything that he didn't like. That's what he did. And he, and he, he took that little booklet after he cut everything out that he didn't like, and he called it the, the life, I think, the morals and the life teaching of Jesus of Nazareth. 
And he was a deist. Many of the founders of our country were deists. I know some people say that they were Christians. I think it's important that we do our history because you'll find that they were deists. They believed in a God, and Jesus was a good teacher. Even though they talked about Jesus in our early history, it's important that you lock in to see if they were born again and they really truly believe that Jesus was Lord. It's a very important thing. Just because somebody talks about Jesus and says that they're a good teacher, you know Muslims believe that there was a Jesus Right? I've talked to plenty of Muslims who believe Jesus has a very important role even as in Islam. And so it's important that you know that just because somebody talks about Jesus doesn't mean they believe in him the way that the Bible teaches, which is exactly what we're going to lay down tonight. Okay? Deists. They believe that God, there is a God, but he's not involved. He created, uh, he created uh, human beings. He created order. And then he basically just relinquished control, and he's an absentee at this point. That's deism. And uh, I'm not going to be pre uh, presenting any evidence of God's existence, as I already told you. Uh, but I acknowledge that there is a place for that. I acknowledge there's a need for that. I, I, and I actually think that it's not uh, something that we can't do. We can obviously point to many, many things um, in nature, creation, and so on that will help people see that God is involved, right? I mean, I've heard several things in my 17 years, almost 18 years of being a Christian that have helped me see God as a creator in all of the things that we interact with as a human being. It's amazing. You know, Psalm 14.1 and Psalm 53.1 says this, that the fool says in their heart that there is no God. Even a person on a basic level, to conclude that there is no God means that they know something that, that means that they believe that this is true. So they're already spouting a specific truth. There is no God. They've concluded that. So they're making their doctrine to be atheism. And so we're not those kind of people. We approach the doctrine of God knowing there is a God. He's revealed himself to us. But how is it that God has revealed himself to us? Who is God according to scripture? And I want to say to you tonight, what makes Christianity Christian, what makes Christianity Christian and stand apart from other religions is not just that we believe that there is a God and that he's a creator. Many religions believe that, amen? Many religions believe that there is a God, uh, somebody that's ultimately responsible for all of this one way or another, but it's not just that, or someone that's eternal, or that there's a, a creator or a God that's perfect, or spirit, which he is, but that we believe God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Bible teaches that God is revealed to us as a Father, a Son, and a Holy Spirit. We historically and presently believe that our God is Trinitarian in nature, and this is fundamental to the Christian faith. It's not something that you hear about regularly anymore, but it is very fundamental to the Christian faith. And it has been challenged through time and history as well. St. Augustine wrote this. He said, if you deny the Trinity, you're going to lose your soul. Now, whether he's right or not, I think when you come to Christ, you don't know you don't know all of these things in detail. When I gave my life to Jesus, I didn't, I didn't know Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one and three, three. And I mean, I didn't know all of that. It's, it's hard to say what people really know when they come to Christ. You don't know much. But he said you'll lose your soul. And he said if you try to explain it, you will lose your mind. So I thought that was pretty good. And, and I'm going to do my best at really just presenting what the Bible says. I'm not going to go conceptual. I'm not going to talk to you about the apple and the apple core and the ice cube and steam and water. And I think all of those fall short. We try to explain the Trinity to our kids, and they still look at us and they say, oh, yeah, I get it, and they don't get it, okay? Because there's a level of mystery 
to who God is and how he has revealed himself to us. And we just have to admit that. God is not a man, okay? God became a man in Jesus Christ, but God is not a man. He's not like us, all right? So there's mystery to that because the finite can only understand so much about the infinite. It's just the way that it works. And so by faith, we embrace who God is as he reveals who he is in Scripture. That's why the authority of Scripture is so vital and it's so important for us to believe. And we'll talk about that in four weeks. I actually have a guest speaker coming to share that with you because I've already done it. So I wanted some fresh perspective on that. The Trinity is this, one God who eternally exists as three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who are each fully and equally God. This is vital to our faith. I want to say this again. The Trinity is one God who eternally exists in three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who are each fully and equally God. By saying persons, we do not mean that God is a person like us or human, but personal in that scripture reveals Father, Son, and Spirit. They speak, they feel, they act, they think. They are not impersonal forces. That's what we mean by person. Don't get offended by that term. We're not talking about like human beings. Each member of the Trinity is fully God, and in that they share all the divine attributes of God, and they are equal in the sense that not one of them is more God than any other. And that's important for us to realize. Yes, there's deference in the Trinity, there's functions, there's roles, Father, Son, Spirit. There are roles within the Trinity, but that doesn't mean that each of them are less God than one another. That's what we mean by they are all equally God. In the early church, there were a few groups who rose up to deny the Trinity because they denied the deity of Jesus and personally the Holy Spirit. However, the doctrine of the Trinity has been affirmed throughout church history based on scriptural claims and equality towards Father, Son, Holy Spirit in the Bible. And this is what's got to mess with us. When we look at scripture, we've just got to go with what it says, all right? We've just got to go with what it says. Now, the first point I want to make to you tonight as we talk about who God is, is there is one God. Point number one, there is one God. The Bible is clear from Genesis to Revelation that there is only one God. This is where the confusion can come in. But let me read to you some verses. Deuteronomy 32, 39 says, See now that I, I am he, and there is no God besides me. This is, this is God speaking. Of course, Moses being involved. Psalm 86, 10. For you are great and do wondrous deeds, you alone are God. Isaiah 43.10, you are my witness, my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed and there will be none after me. We're talking about God, there is no equal. Isaiah 45.5, I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me there is no God. I will gird you, though you have not known me. All right, it's very important to see. There's no other God, just one God. There's a saying in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy called the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one God. You've heard this before. Jesus actually reiterates it in Mark 12, 29. Jesus says, the foremost is this. He's, he's, re, he's responding to somebody. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, or one God, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. So we need to establish right now, the very beginning, there is only one God. And at the same time, we understand why the Bible says this. The Bible says that there's one God not because 
It's saying that there isn't a trinity or God isn't Trinitarian. It's saying this because the Bible time and time again refers to other gods. There are other gods in the Old Testament. There are other gods in the New Testament. When the Bible warns people about false teachers in the New Testament, it's saying that they will teach you about other gods. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, when the people of God are being warned not to listen to a prophet is he leads the people astray to serve other gods. The reason that the prophets would say, thus saith the Lord. Everybody remember where the prophets say that? In the Old Testament, thus says the Lord. That term Lord is capitalized in the Old Testament because it's Yahweh. It's the specific name of God. This is what Yahweh is saying. This isn't Ashtoreth. This isn't Molech. This isn't Baal. This isn't any other God. This prophet is a prophet of Yahweh, and they're speaking the word of Yahweh. There were other gods and there were other prophets of other gods in the Old Testament. So when the Bible is saying, hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one God, you have to expand your thinking. It's not saying that God isn't Trinitarian, which is what some people get confused with. It's saying that there were other gods and they're saying the God of Israel, and now we know revealed in Jesus Christ, everything that, everything that he is is one. And it's not the same as polytheism, which they obviously were in that in and among a culture, the Egyptian culture, that was polytheistic. So I hope you're following me. This means yes. Okay, good. All right. You guys, I always say look like a tree full of owls. <laughs> or like you rolled down a car window and you stuck your head out. You know, the wind peels your eyeballs back. It's awesome. Anyways, you guys look beautiful is what I'm trying to say. You look very handsome, very beautiful. So the Bible affirms the God of Israel, and as we are saying, revealed as Father, Son, and Spirit, who is the only God, the one God, the true God, in the midst of other gods in other nations. Now, the main point we need to make as we look at who God is would be that there is one God, and he has revealed the way that I'm going to say. And so I want to talk to you about Father, Son, and Spirit, right? This is what we call the Trinity. God has a Trinitarian nature, as I've shared. The first we're going to look at is the Father is God. In John chapter 6, verse 27, I, there's so many verses to go to. I could do a lot of Old Testament verses, but you understand, I have to move along quickly. John 6, 27, Jesus says, Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him the Father, God, who has set his seal. Obviously, I'm not giving you context of that verse. I'm just simply saying Jesus referred to the Father as God. Jesus prayed to the Father. He referred to the Father as God constantly. Paul does the same thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 6. He says, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things are, from are all things, and we exist for him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. And that's where you start seeing verses, which we'll talk about in a moment, that tie the Trinity together. You see the Trinity in these verses together constantly. It's very important to see that. So these are a few among very uh, uh, tons of verses that talk about the Father being God. Now, uh, historically, nobody actually argues whether or not the Father's God. I, there's lots of heresies, lots of heretical teachers, uh, lots of uh, confrontation over the years, uh, a rebuttal to Christianity. Nobody's ever argued that the Father is or isn't God. Everybody's accepted that. That's the way uh, cult leaders, they've all accepted the Father is God. Where we get into trouble or where we get into turmoil where there's a rebuttal is whether or not Jesus is God. Does Jesus have deity? That's what people are really fighting over. And so we're going to look at, at the second, or the third point is Jesus is God. And we'll start just in John 1, 
uh, chapter 1, verse 1, and it says this, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and I have that underlined, and the Word was God. Now, that's really important. If you're reading uh, the Jehovah's Witness Bible, which is, I think it's called the New World Translation, and I talk to them when they come to my door, their version, because they had somebody that's not a scholar who wrote their Bible, it actually says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. They change it. Everywhere that there's deity to Jesus Christ, the Jehovah's Witness Bible, the New World Translation changes it. It's important for you to know that. Muslims do the exact same thing. They take away the deity of Jesus by changing scripture. It's very important that you know that. When you're talking to people, they have their own version of the Bible, all right? And the Jehovah's Witness version of the Bible was not written by a scholar, that, which, is, which is important. Okay, there you go. But it says this in, the, in most versions that we would accept as Orthodox Christians. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, which presupposes him from existing prior to being born uh, to a virgin. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Here he is in the creation of humanity, the creation of our world. Now, for, uh, John chapter 1, verse 14 actually defines the word. It says, in the beginning was the word. Well, who is the word? We see that it's Jesus through verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And when I became a Christian, this is where people led me right away. It's important that you realize this absolutely confirms the deity of Jesus. They did not make a mistake. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. That's not a mistake. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus was around prior to being Jesus. All right. Just that simple. John chapter 8, verse 58, Jesus says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus did not make a mistake when he said this. The next verse, they got stones to kill him. There's another verse that refers to this verse where they say, You being a mere man, make yourself out to be equal with God. They say it twice. The reason that they wanted to kill him in proposing blasphemy is because he made himself equal with God. When he said, before Abraham was, I am. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's being very clear with the Jewish people. They knew exactly what he meant. There was no mincing of words. Jesus was very clear. And so unless you have anybody say, well, where does it talk about Jesus' deity? The first century Jewish people knew exactly what he was saying, and we ought to know that as well. Before Abraham was... I am. This was a very serious claim. He was invoking the name of God, and he was calling himself that. And if you go to Philippians chapter 2, when the Bible talks about Jesus was obedient even unto death on a cross, he says that God gave him the name that was above every name. There is only one name above every name. There is not like a secondary name that God gives out to those that are really obedient. He says he gave him the name that is above every name. And the Bible says that he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. So God gave him the name that is above every name at the name of Jesus. Not the name Jesus, but the name of Jesus. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And if you want to take that into an Old Testament context, it's that he is God. Jesus Christ is God. We're talking about the Trinity, one and three, three and one. They're one, they have oneness, they're in unity together, 
and yet there's, dis there's distinction among them. It's very important. So we see this clearly. John chapter 20, verse 28. Thomas answers. This is after Jesus rose again. He says to him, after he sees Jesus, and it's revealed to him who Jesus is, my Lord and my God, says this to Jesus, and Jesus doesn't stop him. You would think as a good rabbi, if he was just an anointed man who could suffer and die on the cross for our sins and rise again because he was God's anointed person, which some people believe, and as a pastor, I have had people tell me that that is true. They have had people tell me that Jesus is not God. He is not God the Son. They have told me and given me books to that effect that Jesus Christ is just an anointed chosen man. The Father chose him. People believe that, and it's actually growing because we don't hear some of this anymore like we should. But this verse, Thomas says, my Lord, my God, and Jesus doesn't say, stop that. There's another time where they were worshiping Jesus, and the Pharisees were saying to Jesus, stop them, look at them, they're worshiping you. He says, even if they stop, the stones will cry out. Only God is, is to be worshiped. And if Jesus allowed himself to be worshipped, either he's blaspheming or he is, in fact, God. Romans chapter 9, verse 5, whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh who is overall God, who is blessed forever? Paul just says it real clearly. I, I like that. Titus chapter 2, verse 13, I told you lots of verses. You guys ready? Are you guys ready? He's like, man, there's not any context to this. I know, I got to run. You got to run with me. You ready? All right, don't, 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 don't do that, okay? Just stay with me. All right, stay with me. Don't start leaning. Says this, Titus 2, 13, looking for the blessed hope and the peering of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Our great God and Savior. Wow, that's pretty clear. 1 John 5, 20, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and this is eternal life. Wow. The deity of Jesus is all over John. It's all over 1 John. John seemed to know something about Jesus that we need to be very clear about. And when I told you that I was concerned about the biblical literacy, and I, I don't think everybody needs to be a scholar, but I think what ends up happening, you know, we get deceived because we don't know and we don't grow. And deception, the thing about deception is it's really deceiving. Like nobody wakes up in the morning and goes to the first church of the deceived. <laughs> nobody. Nobody ever planned on getting deceived. Did you? I, I, I'm going to make a plan that I'm going to let someone deceive. It doesn't happen. Deception happens through trickery. People are tricked into believing things that they later, hopefully they later find out to be false. And so it's important that we know this and that we embed it. I, I want to teach this because I want to embed it into people. It's amazing how much um, I was listening to a guy... See, this is where I deviate a little bit from my notes. I was listening to a guy, he was, um, he was on the panel, the faculty member of a very well-known seminary, and he was on the panel to interview the candidates for PhD or a THD, a the theological degree in the highest level at this very well-known seminary. He was one of the uh, distinguished professors that was on this panel. So you would come and you would sit in front of these uh, in front of these professors who taught at this well-known seminary, and you would basically uh, be interviewed for a couple hours as to whether or not you were the kind of candidate that should advance, because you are part of their reputation if you get a PhD from their institution, if they should advance 
uh, to, to learn at that level and represent them. Because once you get that degree, you can teach anywhere in the world. I mean, that's really why a Christian would get a PhD or a THD is because once you do, you, you, not just a doctorate, but that le- le- level, you can teach anywhere in the world. That, that's hopefully what I, I want to get someday when I don't have 100 children, you know. <laughs> but for now, we're working for a reason. And you all find people show up to, maybe you didn't show up to hear me speak, but here you are, and here I am. But he was, um, I heard this guy talking, and he was saying, out of all the candidates, listen to me very closely, they've made it through a four-year bachelor's degree at a Bible college. They've made it through a two- to three-year master's degree at a seminary, all right? All of this theological studies, they've made it all the way through there. And this guy said that he asked them to give him three proof texts of where you can find the Trinity and the deity of Jesus. And he said it was just the most awkward conversation you can imagine. People couldn't pull him out. Like, yeah, we all forget like address, right? <laughs> Cross street. We all forget some of that. Somewhere it is written is a pretty good response for most of us. That's fine. We know it's there. Maybe we can quote it a little bit. I'm not saying you need to memorize everything and that makes you a good Christian. I'm just saying these are well-educated people and they couldn't provide, most of them, he said, could not provide three proof texts of the Trinity and the deity of Jesus. That's concerning to me. That means on average most of us can't do that. That's probably what that means. And that's why it's more important that some of the stuff that doesn't inspire us but instructs us should become that much more important to us, which goes back to why I said I was concerned. Okay, because the Bible is chock full of these, these instances, and we should find ourselves very equipped on this, and I want to do that, that's the whole point of this. So, there is one God, the Father is God, the Son is God, and we also believe that the Holy Spirit is God. The Holy Spirit is not an it. Come on, somebody. I, the King James Version, I love Elizabethan English, thouest, dost, dust, yeah, I can't even say it. I wouldn't be good, Romeo and Juliet, don't sign me up, but I'm just saying, There's over 400 archaic words in the King James Bible, but in Romans chapter 8, it says, uh, the Spirit itself. I'm like, ah, the the Holy Spirit's not an it. It was a very bad translation, okay? All right? So there are actual translations that refer to the Holy Spirit as an it. The Holy Spirit is not impersonal. The Bible says that the Holy Spirit can be resisted. The Holy Spirit can be grieved. According to Hebrews chapter 10, the Holy Spirit can be insulted and blasphemed, according to Jesus. He's not an impersonal force. You cannot, uh, you cannot offend electricity or gravity. You understand what I'm saying? You can't grieve electricity. Electricity goes, I'm really grieved today. I'm insulted. That's terrible. No, you can only insult and grieve uh, a person. All right? And we're using the, pers- the term person loosely. You understand what I'm saying? And the Bible talks about the Holy Spirit instructs. The Holy Spirit leads. The Holy Spirit convicts. John chapter 14. The Holy Spirit speaks. He is very, very personal throughout scripture and we see this in 2nd Corinthians chapter 3 as we're talking about the Holy Spirit is God 2nd Corinthians chapter 3 verse 17 says now the Lord is the Spirit the term Lord is very definite it's very specific the Lord is the Spirit and where the Spirit of the Lord is there is liberty but we all with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, comma, the Spirit. He's saying very clearly that the Spirit is the Lord and the Lord is the Spirit. It's very definite. Acts chapter 5, verse 1 through 6, if, you've, if you know this 
verse at all or this set of passages is actually a very strange passage for the early church. The church has not, uh, not been around too long. It's been birthed recently. And there's this moment in Acts chapter 5 where the people are selling all that they have. They're selling their land and possessions. And they're taking that money and they're setting it down at the feet of the apostles so that they could distribute. It wasn't socialism, all right? It was just a way of sharing so that everybody could be provided for. That's what they were doing. And so they were giving it to the trustworthy apostles so that they could give to those that had need. And there was a person named Ananias, and his wife was Sapphira. And he comes in, and he gives his money. And then Peter looks at him and says, is basically, I'm paraphrasing, is this everything? And Ananias says, yes, this is everything. And then Peter looks at him and says, you haven't lied to men. You have, why have you lied to the Holy Spirit? And then he references, in verse 5 and 6, you haven't lied to men but to God. So in one verse he says, you've lied to the Holy Spirit, and in the next verse he says, you haven't lied to men but to God, associating the Holy Spirit as God. It's very clear. These are frequently asked questions about the Trinity, all right? I'm going to go over this really quickly. I, I, I had like five, and trust me, we're doing a very bird's eye view on this, okay? So I hope you're picking up what I'm laying down. Frequently asked questions. Does the Trinity appear in the Old Testament? Does the Trinity appear in unity and in harmony, working together in the Old Testament? The answer is yeah, absolutely. And matter of fact, I think it would not be exaggerating to say there's at least 80 to 100 verses where we see somehow the Trinity working together in harmony and unity. It's all over the place. And by the way, can I say this not as a Hebrew scholar, but as somebody who reads books from Hebrew scholars? Can I say this? I'm going to. I want to say it. When the Bible says in the Shema, Hero Israel, the Lord thy God is one God, there are nine Hebrew words for the English word one. Nine. And it's important that you know that because whenever you translate one language to another, you have to realize that some words are singular and other words are plural. Like when you see the word, the term for God in the Old Testament, Elohim, that's one of the names of God, Elohim. It allows for, for a plurality, not polytheism where there's many gods, but it allows for God to be complex. It's a word that carries a level of mystery to it that allows for God to be complex. And we don't have words that best describe what the Trinity means. The best is in Robert Morey's book, he calls the Trinity a compound unity, is what he calls the Trinity. A compound unity. It's probably the best on a scholarly level. But the word that's used in the Shema that Jesus reiterates, Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one God, is the Hebrew word that allows for plurality. Isn't that amazing? I mean, if they used the word in Hebrew that was singular, it would be different. So, for example, if you were to say, this is one chair, it's obviously one chair. There's no allowance for anything else. But if I were to say, this is one family, it's complex. That could mean that there's several family members. Does that make sense? And so you've got to know what you're reading. And often when we look at the Bible and we only know English, there, you don't have to be a scholar, but there are points where we've got to bring in people who do the studies that we don't do because it leads us to the understanding that the Bible actually meant. And this is why we've got to have more of a biblical literacy because when people in our culture spout out Bible verses to make Christians look like they're terrible people or uh, especially when it comes to like Old Testament versus New Testament, what really is happening is there's an ignorance that is being propagated and then, you know, media will have some kind of foolish person that represents, supposedly represents Christianity. They'll give him a microphone or her a microphone and they'll say this is what Christians believe, which is, which is crazy because we think he's foolish too. All right.
biblically thinking people think that that's foolish too. But you have to understand that you have got to know more. You've got to, wait, wait, what does that actually mean? It's important that when people culturally say, the Bible says judge not, well, what did Jesus mean by that though? What did the Bible, what did the Jesus mean by judge not? I mean, you've got, we've got to do a little research. We've got to understand the context. You understand? We're people that, that know better than just to be, than just to spout what the culture is saying. Uh, they're not the, they're not the ver- version of the Bible that we should be carrying is what I'm saying. So it's important that we get that and, and there's a lot to learn is really my point. We're all disciples, learners of Jesus Christ. Okay, okay. Does the Trinity appear in the Old Testament? Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 says this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving. So you have the Father, and people say, well, where's Jesus? Well, before Jesus was Jesus, he was the Word. That's what John chapter 1 says. In the beginning was the Word. Don't blow, I mean, stay with me, okay? Thinking Put your thinking cap on. Before Jesus was Jesus, all right, he still was the son of God, but the Bible calls him the word. And isn't it interesting, it says, the earth was formless and void, and then it goes on to say, God said, let there be light. You have the father, you have the word, communication of God, and you have the spirit hovering over the deep. It's just a mystery, but I'm saying there it is. And then in verse 26 of Genesis chapter 1, listen to this. Then God said, let us make man in our own image. And he wasn't talking to the angels because the angels are not created in the image of God. If we don't believe in the Trinitarian nature of God, Genesis chapter 1 verse 26 doesn't make sense. We have to come up with a new explanation because it can't be an angel. God's not consulting with angels. He is consulting among himself. It's powerful. Which leads to other things that we'll get to in a little bit. That God didn't make us because he needed us. Like some religions teach that God created us because God needed us. God was actually perfect and complete in and of himself. In his Trinitarian nature. Come on, that's what I heard. That's what I'm saying. Genesis chapter 3 verse 22 says this. Then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us. Oh, there it is again. I don't know what you do with that if you don't believe God is Trinitarian. Genesis chapter 11, verse 7, come let us go down and confuse their language when the people were building together. There it is again. You have it several times. One, two, three, four. Just in the book of Genesis in the first 11 chapters, there's actually another reference that I didn't get to. But you've got to follow these and, and really realize that, yes, the Trinity appears all over the Old Testament. Number two, does the Trinity appear in the New Testament? Yes, Luke chapter 1 verse 35 says, the angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, this is to Mary, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Who's the power of the Most High? The Holy Spirit will, because we know that from another verse where it actually communicates very clearly that it was the Holy Spirit. The power of the Most High will overshadow you, and for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called Son of God. You have Father, Son, Holy Spirit in this very passage. Matthew chapter 3, verse 16, you have another passage of Scripture where you see the Trinity in harmony working together. After being baptized, this is when Jesus was baptized, he came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. And behold, a voice of heaven, from heaven said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. You have Jesus, the Son, you have the Father speaking, and you have the Holy Spirit descending. You have a picture of the Trinity working together, harmony and unity right there. It's very, very powerful. 
So they're distinct, but they're one. They're distinct, but they're one. It's very important. From this, we see the Trinity working together in verse, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1 through 2. This is a verse where Peter actually says how the Trinity works in our salvation. Listen to what he says. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens, sounds like me, scattered throughout. That's a really bad joke. I got one laugh. An apostle of Jesus Christ to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, those who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, by, sanctif- by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood, may grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. That's amazing. There you have Father, Son, Holy Spirit in the context of the conversation of our salvation. It's incredible how they're all involved right, right there. This doctrine is important for our understanding uh, even more so as we're reading these verses. Now, number three, when was the Trinity formed as a doctrine? My research, I, I think I read maybe four or five church fathers is what we call them, like Tertullian and some others. They actually defended and taught the doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, this was uh, 100 to 300 A.D., uh, you can find them in church history. It's not hard to do, especially in the age of Google. But there was a group of Christian teachers and theologians that got together in 325 A.D. If you've gone through our Bible class, you've actually heard us talk about the Council of Nicaea. This is a place where they gathered, and they stated the doctrine of the Trinity, and it is held ever since. There was another gathering in 381 A.D. where they reaffirmed it. And they did so because there were a lot of teachers that were coming up with their own versions, and they had to state it very clearly. It's also when the Bible was brought together in its 66 books and its collection that we have today. It was at that same time that both of those were stated. And they've held ever since. This is what we call orthodox Christianity. If somebody says something different than what I'm telling you, it has not been holding for these 2,000 years. You're in good keeping with what I'm talking about, in other words, okay? And yet it's popular for people to deviate so easily from these kinds of things today, and they shouldn't be able to do so without considerable Bible research, study, and, uh, and the like. And I see it happening all the time. I call it popcorn theology, whatever you can fit into like 144 characters, and sounds good, must be right. If it rhymes, it must be right, right? No, you guys haven't been there. Okay, that's fine. And this is what the creed from the Council of Nicaea actually says. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, listen, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before, before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, I mean, they're just like constant, making it sure, I'm not sure if you know what we're saying here, begotten, not made, uh, preexistent, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered, he was buried, and on the third day he rose again according to the scriptures and ascended into heaven and sits on the right hand of the Father and he shall come again with glory to judge both the quick or the living and the dead whose kingdom shall have no end. This is what they wrote. We still believe this. I still believe this, not just because they wrote it, because it's in Scripture. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, 
who proceeds from the Father. They just go on and on and on and on. It's amazing. This is what they believed. This is what many paid a price for. This is what we believe as well. Now, all, I, I believe that we all believe this. I just want to fortify it in you. This is who God is. What is God like? I, I think I have a little bit of time left, so we're going to go over that. Now, Scripture reveals quite a bit about the attributes of God. However, it's helpful to divide these attributes. There's two ways that people do it, at least the theological books that I have. There's two different ways, two categories uh, that most teachers put them into. The theological book that we're using, Foundations of Pentecostal Theology, divide God's attributes in his absolute attributes and his moral attributes. There are other books, which I would call maybe more Reformed theology, would call them, um, uh, in, uh, forget the word, incommunicable and communicable. Meaning in, incommunicable or absolute would be that these are uh, attributes that God doesn't share with human beings. Right? These are not shared. These are his alone. Communicable or moral would be that to some degree, obviously not on the same level, but to some degree we share in these attributes with God as those who are made in his image, imago Dei. We are made in God's image. So therefore, to a degree, we share in those according to what God has given us as his creation in his image. Now, I want to just go over some absolute attributes of God. I won't have any time to go over the moral attributes, which would be like loving and merciful and all that, although I think I put them on your paper. I didn't. I put them on my paper. They're not on yours. But you can email me and I'll send you those notes. It's just simply because we're going to run out of time and I, and I know that. Absolute attributes of God. Number one, God is self-existent. This means that God is the creator and he is the source of all life and being. This attribute is referred to in a few terms such as the independence of God. Some books refer to this as God is uh, independent. The aseity of God and in addition to this, people will refer to, or in conjunction with this, they'll refer to the simplicity of God. These are like theological references that you'll hear. If you're ever going to a class of systematic theology, you'll hear independence of God, you'll hear self-existent. I just think self-existent is saying what we're trying to say. God is self-existent. In and of himself, he is self-existent. He was uncreated. We are created by the creator. He was not created. A lot of people don't accept this it seems like, because it's hard to accept. And I agree, it's hard to accept because we don't understand as creation or as created, we don't understand uncreated. It doesn't make sense to us. But that's what the Bible says. God is not, doesn't think our thoughts. He's not, his ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. He's above and beyond all that. In Jesus, he's come and revealed himself and, and he helps us along, but we're not God. We don't understand Godhood and we don't understand who he is and what he's like in his divine attributes, but we accept them because scripture says these kinds of things. Colossians chapter 1 verse 15, there's lots of references, I'm just going to give you a few. It says this, he is the image, talking about Jesus, oh I'm, I want to back up. God's absolute attributes are true of the entire trinity. That's why we have to establish the trinity. You understand what I'm saying? Jesus is self-existent, the Father is self-existent. The spirit is self-existent. That's why we have to establish that. So as we go into this, you're going to see these verses, and sometimes it's going to be referring to Jesus, and Jesus makes a reference very clear in John 5 that he has life in and of himself. The Father gave him life in and of himself, just as the Father has life in and of himself. It's important that we realize these all, all the Trinity, Father, Son, Spirit, have these attributes. So you'll see me use verses that will maybe refer to the Son or the Father or the Spirit. You'll see that happen. Anyways. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created. All right, so that's preexistence. Jesus was born 
2,000 years ago, but this verse is saying he was preexistent to that. Both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So we see this self-existence because pre-existence obviously speaks of Jesus being self-existent, not being, he was alive before he was born as a man. John chapter 5, verse 25, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son to have life in himself. It's very important. People will use this verse to say, see, the Father gave it to the Son and he didn't have it prior to that. But you have to understand, this is them working together in, hu- in unity and in harmony. It's not saying that he was created at any point. Every verse related to the Son of God is that he was uncreated, he was with God, and was always with God and was God. God is the creator, God is uncreated, he's self-reliant, he's self-existent, in need of nothing, totally complete. It's awesome. The second attribute of God is that God is immutable. He is unchanging in his being, perfections, purposes, and promises. He is unchanging. That's what immutable means. You just simply say God is unchanging. Scripture is clear that God is perfect in all things, and he is unchanging in his perfection. God does feel and have emotion. This is where it gets kind of uh, sticky, I guess. He does feel and have emotion. However, as he feels things that is in his interaction, he doesn't change uh, his mind, he doesn't change his plan, his purposes, based on what he feels. In other words, nothing on the outside can change what God is on the inside. That makes sense. Like for us, we can have a voice or an influence or a situation or a circumstance can change us on the inside and make us do a certain thing, act a certain way, or believe something. God is not like that. He is unchanging. All right, so whenever you see an interaction in Scripture where it looks as though God is changing his mind, this is what I would say to you, because I've been challenged on this. People say, well, what about that time where Moses is praying and then God relents? The Bible says God relented from that which he was going to do. And I would tell you that that Scripture is for our purpose to read into that and see that God actually interacted with human beings and allowed for that interaction. He knew that was going to happen, and he's drawing something out of us in that interaction in order to raise us up. It was for our behalf. God did all of this for us. He didn't subject himself to be emotionally uh, all over the place as a result of us. God in and of himself is unchanging. His plan was always decided. He knows exactly what he's doing. He doesn't change. It's not something we can't change his mind, his heart, because he knows his plan before the end, before the beginning. He's immutable. That's a divine attribute that obviously we don't share with God. It's very, very clear that we don't. Now, Malachi chapter 3 verse 6 says this. For I, the Lord, do not change. All right, let me give you another one. You're not convinced. Psalm 102, verse 25. Of old you founded the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. Even they will perish, but you endure. All of them will wear out like a garment. Like clothing, you will change them. Everything else will change. But you are the same. You are the same. In other words, through all the changing and through you changing everything, you don't change. It's very clear. Now, James chapter 1, every good thing given, this is verse 17, every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting of shadows. It's another, or it's a fancier way of saying God doesn't change. 
No variation, no shifting of shadows, no changing. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8, which we have actually right up here on the wall. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He doesn't change. Which, by the way, God's absolute attributes spill into his moral attributes. You can see how the faithfulness of God flows out of the unchanging essence and nature of God. When you say that God is faithful, he may not be faithful to what we want. He may not be faithful to our interpretations, but he is absolutely faithful to his plan, his purposes, and his promises. He's faithful to his people according to his word. Doesn't mean he's faithful to my desires. He doesn't have to be faithful to my prayer because my prayer might not be the right prayer. But God is faithful because it flows out of his divine perfection. Isn't that like, does, I mean, doesn't it blow your mind, Cap, a little bit? Like, does somebody like, pink? I mean, right? That's how I feel. I feel like this is the God that wanted to know me. It's not just a theology. It's a God that wanted to know me. He was complete in and of himself, self-existent. He didn't need me. He, he created me because he wanted me. He created you because he wanted to be in relationship with you. He's perfect, unchanging. Men and women change. Cultures change. Generations change. People change their mind, their opinions, their views. They change their clothes. They change the color on their walls. But God is unchanging in his divine perfection. It's who he is. And we love that about God. It's so reassuring. It's so powerful. The third attribute is eternal. God has no beginning. He has no end or succession of moments in his own being. And he sees all time equally, vividly. Yet God sees events in time and acts in time. Now, if you've ever read anything by C.S. Lewis, you know that C.S. Lewis talks about this. This uh, attribute of God's eternality spills into omniscience which we'll talk about in a moment. Omniscience means perfect knowledge. A practical way of saying it is God knows the past, present, and future of all things, not just you and I, but before you and I, whatever was before you and I. God knows the past, present, future of everything. His perfect knowledge of everything. And you can see how the eternality of God, God is eternal, flows into that very thing. He has no beginning point. He has no end point. These all kind of are woven together. Scripture teaches us this. God always was, is, and always will be. That's eternal. 1 Timothy 1.17 says, Now to the king, eternal, immortal. I mean, I'll just read it again. Now to the king, eternal, immortal. And the word eternal in Greek means eternal. Really simple. Psalm 90 verse 1. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. So he's talking about the successive generations. You have been our dwelling place. Before the mountains were born, or you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. This is the term the Bible will use, everlasting. Everlasting to everlasting. It's, 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 a, it's a terminology that the Bible will, will use, especially in the Old Testament. It, can you see how in theology we're grasping at words to try to describe something that we really aren't good at describing? You see how that works? Sometimes we, we get minute about these little details, and we, and we ought to do our best, but it's amazing how we're trying to get down to the pragmatics or the semantics of these things, when in actuality, you step back and you go, I can only understand so much of this anyways. God's eternal. That doesn't make sense. And isn't it awesome that the eternal God chose and chooses 
to give eternal life to all those who believe in him, that he created you and I to be eternal beings. Jesus says that those who believe in him will never die. It's amazing. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Eternity is born within every human being. It's actually a longing that we have. It's why when we go to a funeral, we grieve. There's that sense of this isn't right. If you've lost a loved one, you know that sense. This isn't right. And that sense that you have is absolutely accurate. It isn't right. It's not what we were created for. That's not what we were meant to experience. It grieves God. That sense that you feel, Christian or not, you feel that from the heart of God. Because for whatever reason, created us in his image to experience life and life abundant with him, not apart from him, which is the sin itself, is that we could be like God without God. That's the devil's temptation. He wanted to be like God or greater than God. And I think that's even the mantra of modern day, right? We want to be in control, and in fact, we're not, or we want somebody else to be in control or trust in somebody that we think is in control. Somebody's reading the headlines right now. God's got this. Let's be reminded of that. I, I, I remember I was approaching this teaching and I was just thinking about, it had to be today. It had to be today. And, and we need to be reminded of God. I know it sounds silly like Ben, I know. I don't know if we always know. I don't know that we always know the doctrine of God, the immutable, unchanging God, the eternal God. Nothing, nothing passes through without him noticing. God knows absolutely everything. He sees time. C.S. Lewis would talk about time to God. He sees time from the beginning to the end because the Bible says he is the beginning and he is the end. Time was created. It's an order that was created by God for really for, for the planet, for the solar system, for human beings. It was something that he created. And really we have no idea or no understanding as to how God functions alongside or outside of time. It's not something that the Bible says a lot about. It just says he's eternal. It says that he's the... He, He's the first and he's the last. He's the beginning, he's the end. He's eternal. And we see that and it kind of blows our mind. We're not exactly sure. C.S. Lewis talked about it like a spectrum, like God sees like this. We see this way. We can look back, but we see this way. And he would say that God can see like this and then he can interact, right, accordingly. He works in the present. So it's important for us to understand that. Revelation 1.8 says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God. He who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. Once again, you have Jesus connecting himself to the Father right there. And there's that sense of equality, these statements that Jesus is making. We know that God is eternal, and he grants eternal life to those that believe in him. It's very powerful. Number four is omnipresence. We're we're almost done. Omnipresent. God does not have size or spatial dimensions, get this, and is present at every point of space with his whole being, yet God acts differently in different places, right? There are lots of verses to this effect. Once again, these are things that are hard to understand because it's nothing like us. Just as God is unlimited or infinite with respect to time, so God is unlimited with respect to space. Here's some verses just to kind of blow your mind, right? 
Colossians 1.15, he is the image of the invisible God, speaking of Jesus, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. All things hold together in Christ. How does that happen? I don't know. He just is omnipresent. Psalm 139 is probably the one you've heard before. It's, I believe it's David's plea. It could be another psalmist, but 139.7, where can I go from your spirit? This is the psalmist singing or crying out to the Lord. Where can I go from your spirit or where can I flee from your presence? Where? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take wings of the dawn and if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. In other words, there's nowhere that I can go that you won't be. This is an understanding that he sang with. John 14, 16, when we come to the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, Jesus said, I will ask the Father, here you have Jesus and you have the Father. This is another Trinitarian verse. I'm kind of going backwards to go forwards. You see this. I will ask the Father, Jesus, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. And he's not talking to just one person. He's not saying you, Peter, and nobody else. He's saying, I will give you, the word you is plural. I will give you another helper, and he will be with you forever. Then he goes on to say, that is the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and he will live in you. When you come to the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, where when you give your life to Jesus, the Bible says you're regenerated, your spirit is born again. In your spirit, you have a new nature. Now, you may not live out of that new nature, and so you're learning to exercise your life out of that new nature. It's something you grow into. You can still live the old way, but now you can live out of your new nature. And the Holy Spirit regenerates us, makes us brand new, and he lives within us. The Bible says he's a deposit guaranteeing that which is to come. Lots of verses, not going over that tonight. But just the concept of the Holy Spirit living in us by regeneration. If you're a believer in Jesus, he lives in you. It's awesome, right? But that means he's omnipresent because he can be in every one of us in this room at the same time. And we are all connected to the Father. There's another verse that talks about the whole glory of the Lord will fill the entire earth. How does that happen? Matthew chapter 28, here's the one that kind of blow, blows my mind a little bit. It, it, it's something that you, it goes under your nose quite a bit and you don't realize it for what it is. This is the Great Commission, Jesus says, and Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore to his disciples, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Isn't that cool to see the Trinity working again? Father, Son, Holy Spirit, it's awesome. <clears throat> teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always unto the end of the age. I'm with you. I mean, it, was, it, it wasn't like a comforting verse to like pat them on the back. I, hey, I'll, guys, I'm, I'm with you like I'm for you. It's not, that's not what he's saying. He's saying, I'm, I'm going to be with you through the Holy Spirit, and I'm going to be with you in the mission. I'm going to be with you. That's awesome. That's the omnipresence of God. God's presence fills all things, and therefore he is present. The Holy Spirit is omnipresent in that he lives in those who believe in Jesus, and that's what I said. Now, number five, and I think this might be the last one, and then I'll close just in a mention of God's sovereignty, especially on a day like today. Number five, God's omniscient. He has perfect knowledge of all things past, present, and future. We see that through his eternality, or God is eternal. 
He's omnipresent. God's eternal. He's omnipresent. Therefore, he has perfect knowledge of all things. If God is eternal, time is not an issue to him, right? Beginning and end. He's eternal. And he's omnipresent in his eternality. His perfect knowledge of every detail of everything that happens from beginning to end, it just obviously flows out of that and makes sense. Does that make sense to you? Are you with me on that? Eternal from beginning to end. And he's omnipresent from beginning to end. Therefore, he knows everything that happens from beginning to end. That's what we're talking about in omniscience. Perfect knowledge. God knows everything. He has a perfect knowledge of everything. This means that nothing happens anywhere of which God is ignorant or unaware. God knows absolutely everything that is going to happen before it happens. The, if, if we wanted to get into the theological discussion about if God is good, then why would he let bad things happen? It is because he gave humanity a choice. The reason that bad things happen is because of the stewardship of humanity of our choices. Maybe not your choice. It could be somebody else's choice. But God gave a level. I don't believe in full free will. I believe what I call limited free will. I didn't choose the color of my skin. I didn't choose that I was going to be born in the state of Washington. There's a lot of things that I didn't choose. I believe in limited free will. There's a level of, of limitation. Obviously, you're just simply born into. But God gave a choice. If God didn't give us a choice, you look in the garden, Genesis chapter 1 to Genesis chapter 3, God puts two trees in the garden of Eden. One is the tree of life. The other is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he gives a command of abstinence. He says, don't eat from this tree. If you eat from this tree, you'll die. He, at the same time, he introduced true worship. True worship is to choose God in the midst of options, right? And that's why our life matters so much, and I'm going to preach for a second here. Our life matters so much in this world. Some people are like, I can't wait to be in heaven. Unpack. God wants you and I to worship him in the midst of options. It brings him the most glory because in heaven we won't have that opportunity. We won't have the opportunity to obey him. It will just be what it is in the environment of perfection. And so now he gives them the environment of opportunity or option. He tells them not to do it. They have discernment. He's given them the discernment that this isn't something you're supposed to do or eat from. And they only have one thing. It's not like a guessing game like our culture can be. Is this a bad thing to do? Should I be doing this? I feel like people ask the question all the time. I don't think they had to ask the question. It's like, just don't eat from that tree. That's the only thing. Not a puzzle. And so they get tempted in Genesis chapter 3 to eat from the tree, the woman and the man together. They eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They were given a choice. And from that moment, the Bible says in Ephesians 2, that it, from Genesis 3 to then, Ephesians 2 says, we are dead in our sins and transgressions. He said, when you eat from the tree, you'll die spiritually. They didn't physically die yet. Death was introduced. But spiritually, they died. That's why we need to be regenerated from the inside, made alive by the Holy Spirit. That's why Jesus came to die our death in our place. That's why the significance of the cross is so important to us. Jesus died. He was a perfect human being. He lived a perfect sinless life. He died in our place. So when we believe in his sacrifice, he cleanses all of our all of our sin and we are forgiven and restored into right relationship with God and we become the people that he wants us to be. And I'm going to talk to you about that next week. But it's, this, this, this is vital. It's so vital. So omniscience is important because people use like, well, let me just get into the verses and we'll close. Psalm 139, verse 1. 
O Lord, you have searched me and you have known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down. You are intimately acquainted with all my ways. In other words, you know everything about me. 1 John 3.19, we will know by this that we are of the truth and will assure our heart before him in whatever our heart condemns us, for God is greater than our heart and he knows all things. That's not a puzzle. There's other times Peter actually says to Jesus, you remember when Jesus confronts him after his resurrection? He says, Jesus says to Peter, do you love me? And he says to him, Lord, you know all things. I think he was pretty convinced that the resurrected Christ was standing in front of him. <laughs> you know all things. I mean, hello. It was the way that he lived. I believe that's what he, he thought. Matthew 6, 7, and when you are praying, do not use meanings, meaningless repetitions as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard because of their many words. So don't do that. So do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. But he still wants us to ask because he wants relationship. He doesn't want assumption. He wants relationship. That's a value to him. That's the whole point of the teaching is that he knows, but he wants. Right? He doesn't want rulership. He wants relationships. Very important that we know the difference. And there's other verses I could go into. Let me just close with this thought, okay? In Romans chapter 8, verse 28, we, we quote this verse in difficult times, verse 230. It says, that, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good. It doesn't say that he authors all things to happen. He says he causes all things to work together, good and bad, are planned or unplanned. Whether it caught us off guard or whether we knew it was going to happen, he causes all things to work together. He's speaking to Christians for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. And then he defines the purpose. What is God's purpose then? What is he working all these things out for good for? What, what's he doing? For those whom he foreknew, that means he knew beforehand. He knew we were going to be in Christ beforehand. For those whom God foreknew, he also predestined. He set a path in motion. Those he saw, he set a path in motion. He predestined for them to be conformed to the image of his son so that Jesus would be the firstborn among many brethren, and these whom he predestined, he called, and these whom he called, he justified, and those whom he justified, he glorified. I'm going to talk more about that next week. It's important. I, I'm not trying to convince you. If, if you are, if you have a Reformed theology in your Calvinist, I, it doesn't matter to me, actually. I, I, I think you should be open. I, I think we all should be um, to reading books on opposite sides. I certainly do. I just showed you that I did by the books that I use. But it's, 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 it's something that's important to me that when we look at God's omniscience, the prophetic ministry, for example, the 330 some odd prophecies about Jesus coming, his first coming, it wasn't like God was working really hard to make that happen. God knows the future. Some people don't think God knows the future. It's called open theology or open theism. I, I think it's absolutely wrong to think that. And, and, and I respect people that, there's some people, friends of mine, that do think that. But I think it's wrong because it takes away from all of what the scripture says that God is eternal. God is omnipresent. God is omniscient. I even when you look at like Jeremiah 29, 11, which is a difficult verse. He says, I know the plans I have for you. He's not ignorant of anything that's going on or what he's doing. 
And when he prophesies, when the prophetic words come, not just, not just from us, but from Scripture, these decrees of God, these things, he's seen it before it happened. But it doesn't mean that God has made every stoplight red or green or every bad thing in our life happen. God wasn't in control of every bad thing happening. He allows us to have choices, it, but, it, but he knows what's going to happen. So if God's going to control all this, he has to control it all, which means you and I can't have choice. So people say, why did God allow that to happen? He allowed it to happen because he made a decision from the beginning in his sovereignty. God is sovereign. He has power over all things, supreme power over all things. In his sovereignty, he made a choice. As a sovereign ruler, I'm going to allow them to have some choices. I'm going to allow them. I'm sovereign. I'm supreme ruler. I'm going to allow them to have choices. And in our choice, we win a certain way, but he chose to send Jesus because he causes all things to work together for good. It doesn't mean he authored all of the bad things in our life. Why does a good God allow bad things? Because he allowed us to choose him or not. And not choosing God means a floodgate of hell enters into the world, which we obviously have been experiencing for generation after generation. The pain that you feel, I wouldn't minimize for a second. The, th the stuff that you've gone through and will go through, I wouldn't minimize that for a second by somehow twisting your arm into a theological quip or quote. I'm not doing that. I'm just simply saying that God in his awesomeness, in his wonder, in who he is, his magnificent, has allowed some things. And he allowed them because it's better for us even when we experience the pain of all of the things that we wish never happened to us. Because the alternative is God makes us robots and we get no choice. And as a result of that, relationship is forced, coerced, and love is not mutual in that sense. And God allows us to reciprocate what he gave to us in the first place. So some people say, well, God chooses some in salvation and he doesn't choose others. I believe God has allowed all to come to know him. That's what the Jews had a reason that they were set apart. They were set apart specifically. All right, I, I think I got to get into this next week. I just want to say, God knows who was going to be president today. God, God knew who was going to be president four years ago. God knows who's going to be president in four years. You know, the United States of America is a great country, but it's not the kingdom of God. I, I think some people have forgotten that. People told me throughout this election that, you know, we're a Christian nation and all this kind of stuff. It, 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 they're setting up a theology that says God has to do certain things and be a certain way to this country. Stop that. Just stop. God is for kingdom. He's the king for his king kingdom. He loves every nation. Does he not love Iran? I mean, and so I just want to encourage you that God knows all things, omniscience, and he causes all things to work together for good for those that love him are, call, are, call, are called according to his purpose. And his purpose, his purpose is to make you and I like Jesus Christ. That's his purpose. That's what God is doing. What is God's purpose in my life? It's to make you and I like Jesus Christ in nature, character, and authority. Jesus came to reveal to us that God loved us, 
There was a way for us to restore us in relationship and to show us what a life could look like as a human being rightly related to God. That's what he's doing in your life. There's no greater purpose than for you and I to become like Jesus. That's the purpose of God. We might do a lot of stuff in this life. You might impact a nation. You might impact a family. You might do this and you might do that. But there's no greater purpose than becoming like Jesus. If we lose that, we lose what theology is really meant to help us with. That's what he's doing. In his omniscience, in his perfect knowledge, he knows exactly what he's doing in our life. And we can know that by simply reading this verse and yielding ourselves in good times and in bad times, whether we're happy or we're sad, whether we're scared or, or, or we're super filled with joy or faith or whatever, we can know that God is at work in every person, in every nation for the very same thing, to bring people to him, to make people like him. It's what he's up to.